You're listening to a sermon podcast for a time like this from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. So here we are on the Feast of Pentecost. The long 50-day season of Eastertide is now behind us, and the even longer, much longer season of ordinary time lies before us. Pentecost is the hinge day between the seasons, which caps off the stories and teachings we've been reflecting on during Eastertide with the story and a teaching on the coming of the Holy Spirit, or in the Gospel according to John, the paraclete, translated in our reading tonight as the advocate. With a quick pause next week for Trinity Sunday, the trajectory of the lectionary readings from now through to Advent will find us working through the Gospel according to Mark in a more or less linear and chronological fashion, with just a bit of a detour into John during August. The force of the structure of that lectionary is to say, so in ordinary day-to-day life, what does this gospel story have to say to us? But before we get there, this hinge day called Pentecost helps to set the stage. The story we read from the Acts of the Apostles is vivid, dramatic, and more than a little bit wild. The disciples are together in Jerusalem, where they have been in a posture of waiting and preparation for the ten days since Jesus had gone from them. They're waiting because he's told them to hold tight. And his promise that the Holy Spirit, the Advocate, would come upon them. Well, as told by Luke here in the book of Acts, the Spirit certainly does come upon them. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. And then comes that long list of nations and peoples that Sharon just had to read to us, which sets out just who was able to receive the words of the apostles not in the familiar Greek or Aramaic of that region, but each in their own language. Man, if that was happening all around you, who wouldn't be compelled? Yet, for me, the more remarkable thing is what follows. Simon Peter stands up and speaks. And he speaks with clarity, confidence, and authority. Jesus had called him the rock, Petros, and had said that the church would be built using him as a rock-like foundation. 
But there's really pretty much nothing in the Gospels that would give you any reason to expect that of this guy. When Peter is called at the beginning of the Gospel according to Matthew, he begs Jesus to leave him alone, for I am a sinful man. When he does set aside his fears and join Jesus, Peter is one of the most visible of the disciples, but partly because for everything he understands, he gets at least one thing completely wrong. He does it time and again. He sort of gets what's going on and then completely blows it. Most famously, he is the disciple who denies even knowing Jesus on the night of the arrest, in spite of having just pledged his complete fidelity. Yet now, here he is, taking a text from the prophet Joel and using it in an improvisational way to proclaim to this crowd of devout Jews why they need to take seriously the wild claim that Jesus of Nazareth is the long-awaited one, the Christos, the fulfillment of everything they've been longing for. And Peter does that with complete confidence, commitment, and authority. What the heck just happened to this guy? Well, the Spirit of God just happened to him. The paraclete just happened. Very much in line with our reading from the Gospel according to John, where Jesus says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Peter isn't standing there alone, but rather he's speaking in and through the Spirit, the very breath of God. No wonder he's finally caught his stride. No longer the stumbling disciple, now the spirit-driven, compelled apostle. But for all that this is a dramatic and vivid scene, it really is what follows in the book of Acts that is the most compelling. Right away, we will begin to see that they share their possessions so that no one in the community of believers was left in need. The circle of the community begins to be drawn more expansively, incorporating those who had been formerly considered the other, the unacceptable, the outsider, the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, Cornelius, the Roman centurion in Acts 10. Of course, there is Saul, the Pharisee, who's been a zealous persecutor of the Jesus movement, believing it was all wrong, who becomes Paul, the apostle, the greatest champion of an ever-expanding circle. Just keep drawing it wider as part of Paul's message. In Acts and in the epistles, we watch as Gentiles, women, and enslaved people take their places at the table with Jewish believers, men, and free people, with particular provision made for the landless, the sick, widows, orphans, and others considered 
on the margins by the wider society, but fully at the table in the Jesus movement. If the day of Pentecost is extraordinary, what the Spirit of God brings about in the life of the young church is earth-shaking. And all of that merely sets the stage for what will unfold over the years, decades, and centuries that follow. Because the Holy Spirit kept breathing inspiration, courage, and strength into the people of God. In his book, The Rise of Christianity, Rodney Stark traces just how revolutionary the church of the opening three centuries of the common era truly was. Subtitled, How the Obscure, Marginal Jesus Movement Became the Dominant Religious Force in the Western World in a Few Centuries, it's quite a subtitle, really tells the story of the book. Stark's book points to things such as the space and status Christianity made for women, its practice of rescuing unwanted infant girls who'd been left to die of exposure by citizens of the empire, a common practice at the time. The Christians rescued them and raised them the way in which Christians responded to plagues and epidemics by offering care for the sick rather than shunning them. This latter practice of caring for the sick, even in time of plague, caught the imaginations of many in the dominant culture. So remarkable was the church's compassion and boldness. Theologian David Bentley Hart makes the point that the care of the sick and dying remained a hallmark of the Christian faith right through the Middle Ages and beyond. He writes, there was a long tradition of Christian monastic hospitals for the destitute and dying, going back to the days of Constantine a tradition that had no real precedent in pagan society. St. Benedict of Nursia in the early 500s opened a free infirmary at Monte Cassino and made care of the sick a paramount duty of his monks. In Rome in the 300s, the Christian noblewoman and scholar St. Fabiolo established the first public hospital in Western Europe and often ventured into the streets personally to seek out those who needed care. Even now, if you look around our own city, you will find a number of hospitals with deep church roots. The Concordia, founded by the Mennonite Hospital Society, the Grace by the Salvation Army, St. Boniface by the Grey Nuns, and the Misericordia by the Sisters of Misericord. Though these facilities are now at varying degrees of arm's length from their religious roots, it remains an extraordinary legacy. 
And I think also of the many folks connected to our own St. Ben's community who work in health care as nurses, physicians, and spiritual care practitioners, whose contributions during these days of pandemic have been immeasurably important. Yet, right now, at a time when the infection numbers in our province are the worst per capita in all of North America, what about the rest of us who aren't on the front lines in health care, hospitals, long-term care homes, group homes, and other essential services? What might the Spirit of God be calling us to do in these again challenging days? Well, listen to what Paul writes in his epistle to the Galatians. He writes, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Reflect on those qualities that Paul names as the fruit of the Spirit, in a sense the outpouring, the gifts of the Spirit, and apply them to the state we're in right now, to all of us. Patience, for starters, which calls me personally to a space of acceptance of and compliance with the provincial restrictions that can feel so heavy, so discouraging some days. But to accept and to do that out of a generous love of neighbor, because, of course, the restrictions are not all about protecting me. They're about protecting one another and keeping our hospital system from caving, beginning with intensive care. But that love of neighbor is just the beginning of love and generosity, to say nothing of kindness and gentleness, which call us to not forget those who might be struggling more deeply than we are, to reach out for a conversation right now, not in person, it's by phone, but reach out to offer something so simple as fresh baking to a neighbor, to send a note, an email, a card to someone who might need a particular lift right now to pray and then to let that person know that you do continue to hold them in prayer because you know that the the days are feeling too long and the wait just too much search the list of the fruit of the spirit that Paul sets out in Galatians and see what it might inspire right now in these critical days in our own city and province. No, such things are not nearly so dramatic as what we see in the story of Pentecost as told in Acts 2. But such things, the simplest acts of kindness, of respect and love for one another, of patience, 
are the work of the Holy Spirit all the same. Such things have been spirit-breathed since the sun set on that day described in Acts 2, when they could be understood in all kinds of languages and Peter could finally stand with confidence and speak. Since the sun set on that day, And those early Christians began discerning who they were meant to be day by day in ordinary time the Holy Spirit was at work in the church, in their lives, and in us. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church, including further resources during these days of the COVID-19 global pandemic, or to provide support for our online work, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. Thanks for listening.